0: This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Core Insights Classroom Education Plan, the CEP. The CEP uses learning sciences and a decision support system to match teachers with targeted research-based strategies that increase student engagement and performance in just four weeks. Core Insights is currently offering 10% off new contracts. Search Q-O-R-E Insights at edcuration.com.
1: How can we take what we know about cognitive science, about the basic processes of memory and attention and perception, and build on that to say what are what are more effective ways of learning? Much of that information was getting written up into academic journals where the people who wrote them then read them, Uh, but it didn't get into the hands of the people that it really, really could help. And so my passion has been and continues to be, how do we get all of this rich research, how do we get it into the hands of students and educators who have the opportunity to take that and do something to make a real difference?
0: Today's guest, Dr. Cynthia Niebel, is an instructor in the Doctor of Education in Leadership and Learning in Organizations program at Vanderbilt University. She has more than 10 years of experience teaching in higher education at Washington University in St. Louis, Lindenwood University, and Washburn University, and has worked with diverse populations and from kindergarten age to adults. In her research, she examines techniques to improve student retention emphasizing learner characteristics and applied settings. In addition to her work at Vanderbilt, Professor Niebel spreads the science of learning to educators and students worldwide through her work with the learning Scientist, which we're going to learn all about today.
1: It started with one of our co-founders was up late one night and the, she was on Twitter. And there were all of these students who were tweeting desperately, Um, trying to figure out how to study for their exams and she would just tweet answers to them from what we know. (laughs) around cognitive science like hey try quizzing yourself or whatever. Another person saw her doing that and jumped on board and so they made a quick twitter handle called ace that test and so you can still find us on twitter at ace that test. And then I saw what they were doing. So they they were doing that for a little while. And somebody said, you know, you guys need more characters, you should start a blog. And so I saw maybe their second blog post and said, Can I help? This is great. I would mm-hmm. love to join in. From there, we've had two more cognitive scientists who kind of same thing said, I want to help with this. And so um, from there, we've you know, we've got this weekly blog. Um, We have tons and tons of educators who actually come on and um, write blogs themselves. We have a podcast. We do all these talks and workshops all over the world. And it's, it's really exciting. We also have a book coming out too. One of the best things about it is that it's not an organization. It's just four people who get together with a common passion, which means that, we're not selling anything. We're, yeah. you know, we're we're not a formal organization. We're really just here out of a labor of love trying to give information to folks.
0: Who are the other three learning scientists?
1: Right now it's it's Megan Sumeraki, Althea Need Kaminsky, and Carolina Kieper-Tetzel. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We're bringing you
0: stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are
1: reshaping learning.
0: This continues to be just a sideline for you with from your full-time job at Vanderbilt.
1: Yeah, all of us have full-time jobs and families, and we do this in our, in our very limited spare time. But I mean, as I said, I think that that's one of the great things is, is that Everything we do is because we're passionate about it and not because we're getting paid for it.
0: Right. And your posted at mission, and the one you just stated a few minutes ago, is to make scientific research on learning more accessible st- to students, teachers, and other educators. And you listed... A lot of the ways that you do that through YouTube videos, podcast, blog, downloadable resources, books, and with an upcoming book, which we're going to want to hear talks and workshops. Is
1: that essentially the content that you offer? We're pretty big still on social media. Twitter has been going through some strange changes lately, Um, but as of right now, um, we still have 30,000 plus followers on Twitter, so we still churn out a lot of information there as well, and we have a Facebook page where we post a lot of information too, but most of it is posting the same stuff that you'd find on the website, so yeah, everything you you just listed. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah, okay,
0: and would you say that your primary target audience is teachers
1: or students or parents, administrators, all of the above? When we started out, we were aimed at students. And I think our primary goal is for students to learn more. That's what we want is we want students to be learning more. We want students to learn better. But we found very quickly that if you want to reach students you need to talk to educators, not directly to the students, right? I'm I'm not going to get kindergartners hooked on retrieval practice or whatever, right? Yeah, but sure. if I talk to kindergarten teachers, if I talk to administrators who can really change the culture in their district or in their school to care about this and to really try to integrate it, you know, the higher up we go, the bigger the impact that we have. So we really care about the students, but in order to get to those students, yeah, talking to educators and then, and to administrators is really the way to do it.
0: Got it. And part of the way that you boiled down the research for students and teachers is by identifying six strategies for effective learning and i'm guessing that you pulled from several bodies of research to really create these maybe a meta analysis or something that you did to create these six strategies or identify them can you list the strategies for our listeners and maybe give a concrete example of each one like what it looks like in a classroom
1: yeah you bet so the six strategies themselves you're right it comes out of out of research through our blog, we we talk about lots of different things, but we really hone in on these six strategies because they're the ones that have been shown time and time again in lots of different contexts with lots of different age groups to be effective. And so we want to provide these flexible guiding strategies for folks to be able to adopt these in a way that works for them. We do always talk about these as flexible guiding strategies. So these are not prescriptive, I know uh, quite a bit about the science of learning, but um, teachers know a whole lot more about the art of teaching. And so the goal is that we can provide some ideas that then can be adopted in a way that makes sense for their particular contexts. So the first one um, that probably is the one with the most robust research to support its use is spaced practice. Spaced practice is really just about reiterating material over time with space in between. So that is reviewing something from a month ago, bringing it back up again. What I sometimes say to folks is if if it's one and done, it really is done. Like they're not going to recall that very well. A lot of folks do this naturally in the classroom to to review material over time, but trying to do that with intentionality that the core key concepts come up time and time again, several different times, with space in between is really kind of key there. And doing that kind of throughout the school year and not just kind of within a week or within uh, current um, content, right, but making sure that that stuff comes back up later on.
0: I'm curious, Cindy, if you pulled from uh, Jerome Bruner's research around spiral curriculum. With Yeah, that so uh,
1: spiral curriculum absolutely is spaced practice. It's also... Um, interleaving which is the next one i was going to talk about
0: hey listener if you're driving or walking your dog or cooking dinner and thinking shoot I need a notebook to write these down i've got you these strategies are listed in the episode notes along with all the resources mentioned from the learning scientists and several more you'll have many opportunities to revisit this information for better learning as dr nebel just discussed
1: interleaved practice is this idea of of mixing up the order in which things are introduced and so a spiral curriculum kind of does both so not only do you get to review something over time but you're also reviewing it kind of in different context right so you're putting that next to other things so that you can see the interrelatedness between whatever the core key concept is and this new topic that we're talking about which mm-hmm. is why that's really effective but it can also be done in much simpler terms one of the easiest ways to do it is to give homework assignments that are shuffled instead of putting everything in straight order of like okay we did addition first so here are your five addition problems then five subtraction problems mm-hmm. if you kind of mix everything up it requires students to not just go okay I need to apply this formula here over and over and over again but rather go okay, which formula do I need to use here, Mm -hmm. right? So you're getting a distinction between how things are similar and different instead of just applying it.
0: Yeah, and it seems like it would require a heightened level of attention. Absolutely. And just for our uh, listeners, it's interleave, not interweave.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. They're used pretty interchangeably out there on the interwebs. So if you <laughs> if you're looking for stuff, yeah, you can use pretty much either one. But it's interleave okay. with an L is okay. is what you'll find in the research. And actually, you bring up an, an interesting point there about the attention required. Interleaving is one of those things that works best once you have a little bit of foundational knowledge first, right? So trying to just throw a whole bunch of random jumbled up things at folks who don't know much about it is going to be probably too challenging cuz like too much working memory, too much attention needed to complete that task. But if they know a little bit about it, this is a way to take that knowledge a little bit further.
0: This is not a strategy that you you would use when introducing new skills or concepts. It's for reviewing and reinforcing. Exactly.
1: Okay. The next one um is elaboration. So elaboration is kind of an umbrella term and there are lots of different things that go underneath it in the literature. I'm going to focus on two of those. One is elaborative interrogation. This is again one of those things that you want to do to you want to use to take knowledge Further, not to introduce new concepts. But this is asking how and why questions about material. So how is this related to something else I learned in another class? Why is this important for us to know about those kinds of questions? And then the other is self-explanation. A lot of that research has been done in math classrooms, but essentially, it's, it's instead of just kind of doing a problem, it's walking through and kind of internally saying to yourself, how you're doing it, right? Like, so if you were using the Foil that's <laughs> actually like walking through and saying, "Okay, now I'm multiplying the first ones together, or I'm now I'm doing the outside, now I'm doing the inside, so that um, you're really reinforcing the sequence and not just sort of the the actions, if that makes sense." Mm. Um, so that's that's kind of a self explanation part.
0: Okay, it's a little bit of kind of this metacognitive
1: reflection, like
0: not just what did I do, but how did I how did I do it.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Um, because then later on, you're not just remembering what, you're remembering how. Yes. And the how is the really important part to get to the what. So yeah. uh, if we can get folks to reinforce that, that's better.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because um, as a literacy coach, we would really encourage teachers and students to do that as a way of creating transfer. So it's not exactly. just idea, right. So I didn't just get the answers to, to this particular text or whatever, but by thinking about how I got those answers, that's what enables me to then do it again with a different text.
1: Exactly. So the next one is concrete examples. So concrete examples sounds really simple. It's using real life examples, real world examples, examples that students will relate with, but it's more complicated than it sounds. What we know about concrete examples is that it's important to use multiple varied examples in order to be really effective and promote transfer that you were just talking about in order to recognize that this works somewhere else. I'll give you an example of this that we talk about a lot. You might have an abstract concept like scarcity that students need to learn. And you could start by talking about airline tickets. And as the tickets become more scarce, the price of the tickets go up. But what's going to happen is that students might walk away from that thinking that scarcity has something to do with sales or something to do with tickets. It's actually much more complex than that. So if I gave you another example about a drought and the value of water, now as water becomes more scarce, the relative value of water changes so that you're not spending it on watering your grass, you're not going to reserve it for bathing and drinking or whatever. So using those two examples that have very different features to them will help students to then recognize that principle in a new situation. As opposed to if I gave you ticket sales and or if I give you airline ticket sales and then we talked about concert ticket sales, it'd be like, yeah, okay, those are definitely about tickets. So using multiple examples that are varied helps with transfer.
0: Got it. Okay,
1: Yeah. Uh, The next one is dual coding and dual coding is the idea of combining verbal and visual information. So if you can get a really good visual to go with something students are needing to learn, they'll remember it better. We have an entire section of our brains devoted to visual information. And if we can harness that, then we will learn a little bit better. There's a couple of caveats to dual coding. That is that it's not just about adding pictures to things. Mm -hmm. Um, It really needs to be a picture that illustrates something in order for it to be effective. Otherwise, it's just distracting. And then the other thing is that Sometimes this starts to sound a little bit like learning styles, and that's not what we're talking about. So dual coding is the happy alternative to learning styles that says everyone, regardless of their learning preference, will learn better if they have both verbal and visual information. If we can give that information in multiple modalities, they'll learn yeah.
0: Well, and the everyone is especially important when you think about our English language learners and our students who are struggling learners for whatever reason, that that visual component becomes even more important for them.
1: Yeah, actually, all of these strategies are most effective in students who have some of those struggles. Um, They help everyone, but they help more for folks who are having those struggles because essentially what we're doing is reducing the amount of of working memory that you need in order to complete any kind of memory task, any kind of learning task. And so if we can do that, then those challenges of having to translate on the fly or, or even students who might be coming to the class with, anxiety or food insecurity or stereotype threat, those things that they've got on their minds that are sort of inhibiting their ability to learn. Mm -hmm. If we can reduce the amount of working memory that it takes for them to be able to learn, we're creating equity in the classroom.
0: If you're listening and thinking, how can I take these strategies and layer them over my classroom content in a way that is systematic and relevant and not too overwhelming? Today's sponsor has the answer. This is Dr. Anika Davis, co-founder and COO of Core Insights, the developers of the classroom education plan. And we are proud to sponsor this episode of the EdCuration Podcast. At Core Insights, we believe that teachers deserve access to current evidence-based resources based on their and their students' needs to improve their practice and adapt to their classrooms' needs. We have raised the bar on teacher learning by combining cutting-edge technology with the learning sciences, so teachers get what they need when they need it. Find the Classroom Education Plan from Core Insights at EdCuration.com. That's Q-O-R-E, insights, all one word. You're making me think of our focus right now on social-emotional learning, too, and the fact that if students are if their nervous systems are triggered or if they're in fight or flight for whatever reason, you know, because they're, they came from a home situation that wasn't safe or, you know, they're in a worldwide pandemic or whatever, that they are just not able to attend to those higher order thinking kinds of tasks in the same way. And so the more accessible that we can make all of that learning for them, the
1: better yeah, I think it's interesting that you know a lot of a lot of schools. I think will will try to focus on one thing. They'll say, okay, we're focusing on social emotional learning, or we're focusing on cognitive strategies, or whatever.
0: They're all connected, and you can't you really
1: can't address them apart from each other. That's right. That's right. That one one affects the other considerably. Did we make it through all six? No, we no. still have one more. So the last strategy. Um, And I kind of save the best for last on some level. This is my favorite strategy. I think it's the easiest to implement in most classrooms, but I'll give you a couple ideas of how to do that. This one is retrieval practice. And retrieval practice is all about reinforcing learning. So Mm -hmm. much research has been done showing that having students retrieve something once is better than going over it three times. So yeah, it's it's more powerful than just... um, going over it over and yeah. over again. It actually can be a time saver on some level um, in, in the classroom. Retrieval practice can be anything that involves bringing information to mind, so long as it's actually happening. Depending on the age group that we're talking about, for my college students, I could have them pull out a blank sheet of paper and write down everything they could remember that we talked about last class. And that would be retrieval practice it's even more powerful if i give a little bit of feedback afterward and remind them of of their the gaps in their knowledge it can be a short little quiz it can be concept mapping or drawing out a picture of what you remember. It really can be anything. It can be a debate or a conversation. The key is that that information has to be coming to mind. We did a little bit of research. Megan, in particular, did some research with fourth graders using that blank sheet of paper approach, and it failed miserably. As you can imagine, maybe with fourth graders, pull out a blank sheet of paper and write down everything you can remember. They had just been taught a passage about clouds, I think, something mm-hmm. like that. And she tells this story that one kiddo like just took their pen and drew on their hand and like stamped the paper with it. <laughs> um, some kids literally just sat there like staring at the paper like, you want me to do what now? She had one student who was like writing furiously and she was like, yes, this one gets it. Cool. And it was a beautiful essay about her cat. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, fourth graders is not going to quite get this, this idea. But they did, they switched it around and they used some concept mapping, some scaffolded concept mapping, even where they created it first. Then they gave students specific questions about their concept map. Then they took the concept map away, asked them those same questions again. And then they got this beautiful retrieval practice benefit mm. from having done that. You have to adjust these things to your learners. But if you think about it, I mean, going back to our earliest days, we learned everything through retrieval practice before school. You know, I sit with my, my three-year-old now, right. And we look at a book and I point at things and I say, what's this? And she answers the question, what sound does a cow make? And she answers the question
0: and I provide feedback. And that makes sense. And I'm wondering, um, about the fourth graders being asked to, to write everything they know, if, even just the the task of writing could be so daunting to some fourth graders because they maybe aren't proficient writers yet. But given another method of being able to provide that information or just share with a partner or draw a picture or something makes that
1: task a lot more accessible to them. Exactly. So the concept mapping, yeah. I will say one of the things that you have to be a little bit cautious of when using retrieval practice is that everyone is in fact retrieving. So in my college classrooms started out, you know, oh, I ask questions and students answer them in class all day long. Therefore they're doing retrieval practice. No, the couple of students who answer all the them. questions. Yeah. yeah exactly. are doing yeah. Retrieval. Yep, That's exactly right. And the rest of them are listening at best. And, and the same thing is true if we do a conversation, right? If you do like a Think pair share. I would argue that the think part is probably most important, and I would almost advise like write pair share. Right, like make sure they actually are bringing that information to mind before they get together and talk about it. A a Um, quick write, or yeah, because if we skip over that think part, then one of those partners is probably getting a benefit, but maybe not the other one. The other one's hitchhiking. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, so I'm curious, Cindy, if you have had any experience seeing these strategies being implemented in classrooms or what kind of shifts do teachers and students report back to you
1: once they start using some of these? Particularly maybe with what I'm going to call spaced retrieval practice. I have a lot of educators who talk to me about having implemented sort of some like very small, low or even no stakes quizzes. Like they're not really worth any points they give them quizzes every week and that not only does learning increase but students anxiety about taking those quizzes goes down over time at the beginning they're nervous as can be but over time they're less nervous about it because they they know what to expect and they know that they can do it so it seems to decrease test anxiety a little bit which is a mm-hmm. good thing and then students report liking it because it tells them where they need to go back and focus their study a little bit more, too. Now, granted, that's with high school classrooms, um, for the most part, um, is what I'm talking about right now. Educators report these things. Goodness knows we have tons of research showing that they're effective, right? And especially now, a lot of that research is being done in the classroom, as opposed to laboratory research that is very sterile and far removed. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's being done in the classroom now, which is nice to see.
0: Is there a huge learning curve for teachers? Because this is one of those things that I may have a curriculum that doesn't really have any of these strategies embedded or scripted for me. So then I, as a teacher, have to kind of look at my curriculum through this lens of these new strategies and figure out how to adapt my pedagogy is how do teachers
1: do that? How do they become proficient at this? Goodness knows after doing tons of workshops with educators, that's one of the biggest things that comes out of it is I barely have time to breathe during a semester. I don't have time to like sit down and figure out how to add these things in. And my advice is pick one of these strategies and try to pepper it in where it makes sense to you. And then once you feel like that's pretty natural, pick another strategy and see if you can pepper that in. It's not about these big overhauls. Yeah. And the resources on your website, do
0: they kind of help to to walk teachers through or give them an idea of where to start?
1: So in particular, on our blog, we have a whole lot of guest blogs that are by educators, and they are talking about how they have taken these strategies and used them in their classrooms. And usually it's a technique or two that these guest blogs are really talking about. There's one that I really like that's called the five-sided flashcard or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And It's just like an idea that you can use and adopt pretty quickly to try to make changes. So if you're interested in one of these things, you can go to the website and you can go to just our blog. But if you go to our blog archive, it has tons and tons of search terms. Um, We've tagged things. So if you're interested in spaced practice, you can click on that and see all the blogs related just to that topic. And is it going to matter what
0: content area or what grade band teachers teachers teach in? Will will they be able to to filter their searches based on any of that?
1: So the content on the website, no, it doesn't differentiate um, okay. specifically. You could probably find things for different grade levels for sure. But the nice thing about any of these strategies is that they work for every age group. They're based on our basic mechanisms. I mean, I could really go into some basic neuroscience here and explain, like, they're yeah. really based on how we learn. And so uh, they don't, they don't require any sort of um, special exceptions for different groups or or different ages. What is true is what we just talked about. You have to take that general idea and make it work for your students and your material. Um, As we said, like elaboration and interleaving works better once there's some foundational knowledge, right? You have to, Mm -hmm. you have to know something before you can adopt those.
0: Okay, so if you were a listener and learning about The Learning Scientist for the very first time, this is all new, do you have a favorite place that you would send that listener as a starting point
1: to explore or apply some of the research and tools? I would go to the videos. We do have strategy videos for each of the strategies that I've just talked about that goes into that with a little bit more detail, shows a research study demonstrating the effectiveness, and talks a little bit more about how to apply them in the classroom. And
0: illustrates them, makes them visual, which is one of the strategies. This is true.
1: Use dual dual coding.
0: That's right. (laughs) So good. Well, is there anything that you'd love for our listeners to know that I didn't ask you?
1: Uh, You know, the only other thing that I probably would want to admit or promote is that um, it's not just us doing this work. There are lots of cognitive scientists right now out there doing some of this really good work. Retrievalpractice.org has a wealth of information. There's uh, an educator um, who has a really great blog where he talks about a lot of these things and how he uses them in the classroom. It's the effortful educator. So there are other folks who are in this space doing this good work, trying to use evidence based practices. And so you can do everything from going to our website and getting some tips and tricks to something much more formalized. There's uh, Core Insights has a classroom education plan that is a paid product but um, really comes into the classroom and looks at what's going on and provides evidence-based strategies to to help. So the classroom education
0: plan would be a way for a teacher not effortlessly right but but to give a teacher a structure and a plan for overlaying these strategies onto whatever they're teaching and not have to figure it all out for themselves
1: that's exactly right it's a collects data about your class and then provides the strategies that are very like specific try doing this Ah, Um, so you don't have to do the research on your own yeah so helpful
0: You'll find all the helpful links and resources mentioned in this episode in the episode notes, including the six strategies for optimized learning, the learning scientist website, blog, videos, and Facebook and Twitter pages, Ace That Test. You'll find the learning retrieval toolkit, retrievalpractice.org, the effortful educators, and more. And of course, you'll find today's sponsor, heartily endorsed by our guest, Dr. Cynthia Niebel, Core Insights Classroom Education Plan. Dr. Emily Jablanca, Director of Professional Learning and Leadership at the Fairfield County, Ohio Education Service Center said, the classroom education plan is targeted, individualized, and strategic by helping teachers grow with strategies that are aligned to their needs and their students' needs. You can learn more about the classroom education plan at edcuration.com. Simply click the Let's Talk button to ask a question, request a demo, or learn more. Core Insights is currently offering 10% off their classroom education plan through EdCuration. Thanks for joining us. We hope you'll like, share, follow, or leave a comment. And join us again next week to reshape learning with the EdCuration podcast.